Welcome to the Morse Code Podcast, where we talk with entrepreneurially-minded creatives in music, film, and writing. My name is Corby, and I'm hoping these conversations inspire you to push deeper into your own work, whether you're a full-time professional or just starting out on your own creative odyssey. Excited to share this conversation with a guest whose talents touch almost every facet of the music business prism. John Strom is a musician, songwriter, attorney, and former label head who just released his fourth solo album, Something to Look Forward To. John was a key player in the Boston folk pop scene of the late 80s and 90s. He played bass for the Lemonheads, was a member of the Juliana Hatfield Trio, and co-founded the Blake Babies. In his legal capacity, John has worked with many of music's best and brightest, including Bon Iver, The Civil Wars, Dawes, and The Alabama Shakes. He also served as president of Rounder Records from 2017 to 2022. He's one of those guys you regularly see out there at the shows, as at home, catching a show from the floor as he is rocking it from the stage. He's helped a lot of artists, both formally as an attorney, but also as kind of a low-key matchmaker. John is a lot quicker to connect like minds than he is to take credit for it. If you get something out of the Morse Code podcast, please like and subscribe. And now, here's my conversation with John Strom. Man, thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you again. It's great to be in your home. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Home and studio, the East Nashville way. Well, uh, I want to get into this and for, you were such a great guest to have uh, on the podcast because you have, uh, through your many stations in life, um, been, you know, a, an attorney, an artist. Let's go first. Musician, artist, then attorney, and now artist again, artist throughout. But um, you've juggled a lot of um, balls and seen um, many versions of the artist's life. And I can't wait to hear your perspective. Jack of all trades, master or not. Dude, I can uh, relate. I, um, yeah, if, if I have a superpower, it's self-reinvention. <laughs> and I do enjoy that. That is a good power to have um, for longevity. And it's one that not all even very good artists have. Well, I, if I have a superpower, it's self-reinvention. If I have a, a diagnosable condition, it's ADD, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I probably do, but that's neither here nor there. I'm going to stay on topic. Uh, yes, it's. I like to be fascinated by what I'm doing. I, I'm I tend to be obsessive, and and I tend to go all in. And uh, my self-reinvention has been mostly out of necessity. And, and the one thread that connects everything is music. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly obsessive about music. So yeah, for the first 30 years of my grown up life, like from age, whatever, 14 to 30, I was laser focused on being a full-time musician. And what, uh, what kicked that off? Was your, were your parents musical? No. No, I was a sort of depressed kid. It was a little chaotic in my household when I was a kid. And my parents are amazing. They're, they're academics. They're, yeah, your dad's they, like a professor. I grew up retired. in a university town. He's a professor. My mother was a university administrator. They divorced when I was young. And uh, I was just sort of a depressed kid. I, I didn't really, I hadn't yet found my lane when I was an adolescent, I would say. I wasn't mm -hmm. particularly an athlete. And I loved music. I, I would I would lose myself in music. I was kind of in my head a lot, I would say. So when I was 10 or 11, I started playing drums and sort of locked myself in the basement for about five years and just played drums. And I emerged as, as a, a skilled drummer. Mm -hmm. And 
was in demand. I was playing in the punk rock scene. I was playing professional gigs when I was young. So that was really how I sort of found my way to an interesting social life, at least, was playing music. And was that in Boston it was, area? This is Bloomington, Indiana. Okay, that was my cool. hometown. So not Boston yet. Not Boston yet. So, And then at some point, uh, sophomore year in high school, I met Frida from Blake Babies, who was, she was my high school sweetheart. And after we'd been together a year or so, she said, well, you're obviously going to be a musician, so I want to be a musician too. So how about I play drums? <laughs> so <laughs> I taught her how hard could it basics be? of drumming, and she really took to it quickly. And I, I was learning guitar, so then we became a unit in that sense. And then I went off to Berklee College of Music to pursue it for real. Mm -hmm. So the, the nucleus of the band that became Blake Babies, we went out there and met Juliana Hatfield as the singer and front person, my co-writer. <clears throat> that was really in place with with Frida and me. Uh, we had, I had a real vision for it because I'd come up in hardcore punk, and it was really mind blowing to to find my way into that world because I'd been a, a adolescent going to big rock concerts and that was my obsession. Mm -hmm. Go to the go to the drive to Indianapolis to see Van Halen or whatever Black Sabbath, you know, whatever bands I was obsessed with. And then when I got into hardcore punk, it was also accessible. You could meet your heroes. You could mm -hmm. play shows with them. My friends and I started an all ages club. And we started booking, touring hardcore bands. And this is in high school. In high Still, school, yeah. And I had a, a friend, a friend named Scott Colburn, who went on to be a pretty important producer in Seattle. Uh, was sort of a visionary. He was a freshman in college, and he recruited a rhythm section of high school kids. I was part of that, and we had a band. And he really understood music distribution and how to get your record recorded and out and stuff like that. And so we would actually go play. I have no idea how my parents thought it was a good idea <laughs> to let me get in the van with an 18 year old and drive to Chicago to play a gig and come back a couple of days later, but they did. That's great. God bless them. So and this what, is, this is back then. Uh, it was a lot harder to like make a record. I mean, wasn't it? It's just, you couldn't, I mean, I guess CDs were just coming out. I'm thinking this is like 89. No, no, I'm older than you think. Huh, that's good. Um, I graduated high school in 85. Mm. So I turned 56 this year. So I've been at this a while. But back then, was it hard to make a record? Yes, but it was much easier to make a record than you'd think if you had the, the network of punk rock. Mm. So you could find resources. So like, for example- well, Were the physical media cassettes? Sorry to interject. I just like no, no, sure no. Right you thing. wouldn't make records on vinyl. So the Amazing. record that my high school band put out, I'm not going to share with you either the name of the band or the record <laughs> because I'm embarrassed about it. But the record that my high school band put out was a seven inch EP with seven songs, and that was typical. Mm -hmm. So you would put you doing a seven inch EP at 33 and a third RPM. Didn't care about audio quality. It sounded like crap anyway. Mm -hmm. So you would just get as many songs as you could, and these are you know, one and a half to two minute songs, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like so great kind of tempo and recording so, live in the same room probably, or something like it. Right. So somebody would have, like, I remember there was like an Atari, uh, uh, a track machine, or somebody would have like a, like one of those old task and four tracks or whatever. Yeah. And you would record on those and that was fine. And then also one of the, one of my lifelong collaborators and heroes and best friends is a guy named Paul Mayhern who was the leader of a band back then called the Zero Boys, which was kind of the popular punk band from Indianapolis. So they were they were our big heroes. And Paul's obsession was audio. Mm. And he went to work in a studio when he was young. So he learned how to record bands. So he, he would help 
all of us figure out how to make at least decent sounding recordings. And he put out compilation records. That was another thing that was popular. This this thing back then called the master tape that he put out, which was all these Midwest punk bands. These bands are legendary now, mm-hmm. like Articles of Faith, Toxic Reason, Zero Boys, um, uh, <clears throat> the uh, I can't remember. Like Husker Du was the the you know tip of the tip of the spear, mm-hmm. right? But it was a really, really exciting time to be in music, and I really got the bug. So when I moved to Boston, I sort of wanted to take everything I'd learned and move it to the next level and try to have a career with it or try to, I don't think I thought in terms of career back then. I wanted to do it in a way so that we could tour the country and put out records you know, on a label or whatever. That was the plan. Yeah. So it was all about making that happen. And then my tastes shifted and moved away from hardcore, got more interested in you know, what we thought of at the time as pop music, you know, not mainstream pop. I mean, you were at the center of that, the Boston scene in the early nineties. That was very lucky. That's from my perspective. Yeah. Well, I was out of there by the early nineties. I was, I was, I moved away from Boston by the end of 1990. So I was there for five years, but it's incredibly cool because I'm sure you've had an equivalent of this experience where you get involved with something and you hear somebody's music and it's like, man, this is as good as anything I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's just some local band. <laughs> because it was like Lemonheads and Dinosaur Jr. and Galaxy 500 and Pixies and Throwing Muses. All these bands that are now legendary bands were the local bands. Mm-hmm. And they were our friends. And we were doing it too. And there was a moment kind of toward the late 80s where bands started to get signed deals and become professional concerns. But for a couple of years between about 86 and 88, it was all happening in the local clubs. Um, Let me ask you a philosophical question about that time and place. Did you, to what extent did those bands at that time um, influence each other and by, as opposed to being kind of influenced by pop music at large? I mean, were you guys aware of what was going on outside of the Boston scene? I mean, I'm sure the answer is yes, but were you kind of more into each other? I think, I think the jumping off point to understand this for people who are younger, especially people who are interested in indie music is that in that time, if you played underground music, you were not pursuing a career, a professional career. Yeah. Because the, the very, uh, ceiling of the whole thing was not particularly lucrative yeah like if you look at the the huge bands at the time i mean the hugest of the huge would have been like u2 and rem who were probably playing arenas at that point and that was kind of edging into mainstream music but that was still totally different from like poison and bon jovi and stuff like that you know it was not mainstream it was still kind of underground but really the people within our scene who were the big bands like what the pixies became and what like sonic youth is a good example it was still playing big clubs mm-hmm. and maybe maybe touring the bus, maybe touring in a van with a trailer, whatever, like doing it with a small crew, still, you know, pairing up in hotel rooms. People were not making big money back then. Yeah. And that all changed in the early nineties. That changed with the grunge explosion. Who 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 was the first of your crew to get signed and have that like life changing opportunity? I mean, Juliana Hatfield was among the brighter stars. I mean, that's starting to touch my adolescence. I would well, hear her on the radio. She and I were in the band together, of course. Yeah. So we, Blake Babies, our band together from 86 until 91 was never particularly successful, but we were full-time musicians. We, we would go on tour, we would make records. We went to Europe once, but I think that the one, the thing that, that really kind of blew everyone's mind 
was uh, Pixies because they really were playing on the same bills as us in uh, in Boston to the same, you know, 50 or 100 people. Mm-hmm. And then they got signed by 4AD, which is a British label, hmm. and became huge over there. And I think that got everyone, got everyone thinking like, okay, maybe this is different than we thought. Maybe this is real. And then Lemonheads very soon after that, and I was the drummer in the Lemonheads back then, but it was kind of an evolved pop punk band that was still playing small shows. And they got huge when I was not in the band, when I was playing with Juliana. And then when when Blake Baby split up, then I got back on the Lemonheads playing guitar. Mm-hmm. So I got to enjoy the fruits of being in a successful band because I was in the Lemonheads when they were in their most commercial phase. Yeah. And that's that was a really, it was generous of Evan Dando to bring me back into the band because I think if I had not experienced that, it would probably be a frustrating thing for me just in general mm. to never have experienced the playing to thousands of people and touring in a bus and you know playing on five continents or whatever. I got to do that yeah. and I got to see that that's not really what I want. Yeah, so this is great. So you were how old when that kind of revelation happened? Mid 20s. Sure, and then, so what was the out? Well, Lemonheads broke up in 1997. So for for about 10 years after I dropped out of Berklee College of Music and went full-time in music, and there was a period of 10 years when I was really a full-time musician. And that's not to say that I was necessarily supporting myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, I was just, I was either making a record or touring or trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Moved back to my hometown, moved back to Bloomington. Um, I met my wife when she was an undergrad in business school in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And so Lemonheads broke up in 97 and I was making solo records by that time. I made a couple of solo records back then. And I ended up in Birmingham because that's where Heather, my then girlfriend, now wife, settled with her job. That was kind of her hometown. Mm. So I remember in 97, 98, I decided that at that time I was gonna take one shot at making a record on my own to try to establish a career. Because at that point it was possible to have a career. Alternative radio was big, you know, rock music was big business. So I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna give it my shot. And I did, and I made a record called Vestavia that, that you know, whatever there were labels kind of courting me and stuff like that but it never really quite came together and the record came out. i'm very proud of that record i made it with my friend ed who who was the inspiration for the record i just made and we kind of threw it out there and it did okay it, it it was not something that was setting me up to have the career i wanted at that point i was 30 and i had met the person i wanted to spend my life with that's my wife we wanted to have a family together so i had to really rethink it mm-hmm. so at that point and it's important to to emphasize one point around this, which is at that point, I'd done so much of music and I really, my mindset was such that I felt like I was a failure, like I'd failed. Like all these goals I had, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm really gone for it. And I got to the end of it and I couldn't make a living. Mm. And I was having to go back to school, tail between my legs, it was humiliating. That's the way I felt about it. Sure. Which seems crazy now. Yeah. But the perception at the moment. You understand this though, because you get nuts when you go for something like that. Yeah. You're like, I'm only gonna be successful if I can do this for my whole life. I can be Neil Young or whatever, which is, you know, completely narcissistic thinking, <clears throat> weird, crazy, well, out of your kid, mind it's stuff. It's kid thinking, it's teenage dream thinking. Right. Yeah. When you're 30, you're too old to think that way. You would think, <laughs> but you're not. Because yeah, it doesn't go away. I know plenty of people who just kept going with diminishing returns. 
So I did something pretty radical at the time. And I, and I will say that, that this was, it wasn't like my, my girlfriend was saying, you got to figure this out. You got to support me or whatever. She was, she was saying something that, that I'd never heard from anybody. And this is why, you know, why it's really worked for us, I think, which was, you're thinking about this wrong. You can do whatever you want. You know, if you feel like a failure now, figure out something else you can do, you can be successful at. Because she told me something that was important for me to hear. And this is no slight against my parents or my peers, but they weren't saying this to me. She said, you're smart enough to do whatever you want to do. Just decide what you want to do and do it. So I did something very challenging, which is I decided to go to law school. And <laughs> part of that was going to law school is a way to beg out of everything because nobody asks you any questions if you go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> you got two years. They don't want to know about it. They're just like, what? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. There's no follow-up question. But I think I'd reached the point then when I knew I had to make a radical change and I kind of wanted to find out a little bit more about whether I had it in me to do something that was hard. Mm -hmm. And and I did. I did really well at law school. I did better than I expected. And it, and it paved the way for me to do something really wildly different from what I'd done before, which is I got recruited into a big law firm, went in there as a young associate doing not music work, doing commercial lending and real estate and corporate work, and incredibly hard learning curve. And I learned very quickly that that was not how I wanted to spend my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was not a good fit for me. It was a good, good challenge. You know, I think it's really good to kind of go in over your head and see if you can do it. And I could do it, but that's what inspired me to build something in music because I realized that having a professional life that did not involve creativity and working with creative people was not interesting to me. And I'm remembering an earlier conversation we had, but, and so correct me if I get this wrong, but you, the kind of the early foray into that, you were still at the larger firm and then you were kind of starting to work with bands on the side or um, help me understand. I don't think anybody really took me seriously when I was in Birmingham working at a big corporate firm when I said I wanted to work with music acts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just said, great, fine. <laughs> if you can bring them in and you can get them to pay you pay for it, then then go for it. And that was when I went from a really big firm to a smaller firm. And I was primarily doing work that was representing real estate developers and stuff, which is actually a really good foundation for understanding business generally. It's contracts. But the, probably the luckiest break of my life, and I should give credit as, as often and as loudly as I can, you know, without while still respecting boundaries and confidentiality, is that I, done, I did a little bit of work. I had a couple of clients. I'd done a couple of little indie deals and stuff like that. But the first serious client that showed up at my door was Bon Iver. Mm. And it was a 19-year-old manager who suddenly was having labels reach out because they had some music on the internet and people were responding favorably to it. And he showed up and sent me the album and I heard it. And, you know, it's one of the, it's that same thing I was talking about with the clubs in Boston. You drop a needle in that, or in that case, it was just open a digital file and listen to it. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's like, wait a minute, no, it's actually really good. And then about 20 listens later, it's like, yeah, this might be the best music I've ever heard in my life. You know, <laughs> it's like, wh where does it go from here? That's like so, Skinny Love. Yeah, track, the first that. album. Yeah, it finished. Nobody was paying attention to it. So that was a rocket ship. And that really established me because it was one of those early viral moments back in the, the blog days. You remember where everything was driven by... <clears throat> You know the blogs to decide what was cool. This is like 02? 02? Oh, 2007 and eight. Seven. Okay. 
Um, and can you describe a little bit more about like what the nature of that um, working relationship was with Bon Iver, the manager and the labels where you kind of the back and go uh, the liaison between well this and and uh, this is something that that gets it gets challenging when you're a lawyer because and it was less challenging then because at the time I wasn't really worried about billing and collecting because nobody in my law firm was expecting it mm -hmm. I, I had to charge something mm -hmm. I had an hourly rate and stuff like that but they were way more concerned that I that I do my work that was being handed to me, my partners that that was really making money than whatever I was kind of building on the side. So, because I was working with a manager who was really smart and really passionate, but really young and green, and because I was not necessarily young, I was what forty, but I was definitely green. I was definitely figuring it out. So we we're kind of figuring it out together, mm. and you know, without revealing much about what the actual process was, it's like working with a challenge when you have an artist who's suddenly very popular and is completely uncompromising about the creative vision. That's the important lesson because, you know, backing up from Bonavera or anything else, if you look at all the artists I worked with over my career, and there's been a lot of them, a lot of them have been very popular, but for the most part, they've been very art forward mm -hmm. and very focused on the integrity of their creative work. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I learned when I was working with corporate clients, like real estate developers and banks and stuff like that, is that the reason why you hire a transactional lawyer if you're a big corporation is because you want to manage risks to make sure that nothing interferes with your business model, right? If you're developing a property, you want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to prevent you from opening the business. Are there environmental concerns? Are there, you know, can you get access? Is it, you know like things that kind of bleed into creativity a little bit, a bit like branding, but really is about commerce. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Regent's Bank, everything is in that green color. So they have a trademark registered for that green color, of course. You know, that's that's uh, that's really branding, you know, although there's kind of a creative element to it. But when you work with creative artists of all sorts, um, and I think Bonavera is a good example, is, is it's not like, trying to make as much money as possible from the music. It's about trying to make music that is a pure expression of that person's creative vision and hoping it connects with an audience, mm -hmm. but not saying like, oh, how can we make this more commercial? Mm -hmm. And I've had plenty of experiences with plenty of different clients over the years where decisions are made that are contrary to the interest of making money, like walking away from a million dollar opportunity because because it doesn't feel right or because it's not going to be something that that the fans like or mm -hmm. whatever it's just it's it's never about a cash in because it's longer term and if an art if a true creative artist with a true creative vision compromises their creative vision for commerce they will suffer in the long run yeah including financially so sure you could make an argument that it's that it's entirely a financial conversation but but it i can tell you that it's not and you were able to weather some of these like uh short-term not disappointments but you know see that happening and and my feeling is that you were sort of preparing for this your whole life by being the kind of artist you were going at it the way you were you know you weren't you didn't grow up in la going to poison shows being part of the scene and like wondering how to like turn this into a million dollars all the time you're like let's go out and play the clubs 
And so when other, you, you were working with those artists your whole life because you were them. So working with them in a different capacity, you were, it's kind of hand in glove. I think the different pivots that I've made, if, if we're back to self-reinvention, it's been drawing on the experiences I've had. So including now, I'm doing music deals now again. I've, I've been, I, I was working at Concord running a record label for five years. And yeah, I, I wanted, maybe this is a good segue into that. Um, but uh, so you you were, you came to Nashville from Birmingham. You worked at Loeb & Loeb, big law firm, music law firm. I, I met you when I first came here. I remember I met you in Santa's Pub. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, totally. You were, uh, you were part of an amazing uh, cast of characters that I met when I first came to town. And actually uh, that, that was a uh, really great, but also kind of disorienting moment in my life because when I started in law practice, my, my oldest child, my daughter, Anna, who's 21 now, junior at, 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 in college, mm. she was born at the end of my first year in law school. And then my son was born at the end of law school. And we had another kid a couple of years into practice. So not only was I building a new career as a lawyer and just working my butt off doing that, but also we had three small children and Heather was working too. So I really just had my head down. It, yeah. was, it was, it was one of those times in life that was full of joy, but not particularly fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it was joyous, but not particularly fun. I well, they say. were down in Birmingham for a minute and you were up here in Nashville. So this was all happening in Birmingham. So then I had the opportunity at Loeb and Loeb because I had a few artist clients become successful. The one that really got me on the map here was the civil wars I was working with mm. and, and really kind of brought me into the scene that the larger scene that you were part of right? The singer songwriter scene here, because there's a lot of focus on that artist. So my opportunity at the law firm from here was because I was building this clientele. So that was 2011, the real estate market was crap. So it took us a while to sell our house. So there was about a year to year and a half and I was commuting up here and mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, suddenly it was super fun because I was going out and meeting all these people. I had to, I had to get integrated, but mm -hmm. It's like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> this is there's there's stuff to do that's fun. That's right, you know. And and uh, that was a little unsettling across the board. And it took getting my family here and getting roots planted here to really kind of get my bearings. But that was an amazing time. Mm -hmm. And I I came to Nashville specifically because I wanted to be in the country music business. Oh, I didn't think you would say that. I did, yeah, I, I thought you might be surprised by that, but <laughs> well, because I, I wanted to develop an artist clientele and because I've been a huge country music fan my whole life. I grew up on country music. My old man was, you know, grew up listening to Hank Williams and Carter Family and Nancy Griffith. And mm. one of his best college buddies was a record producer, Jim Rooney, he used to send us all the oh, stuff yeah. he did. So he, you know, Towns and uh, John Prine. And that's the music I grew up on. It was, it was, my dad was a folky. Yeah, I love that music, and so it makes sense. In uh, you know, fourteen-year-old John would go the opposite direction in a way, and well, but if, that never really went away. If you want me to establish my bona fides, you know, in two thousand, uh, no, no, going further back, nineteen ninety-six, I released mm. an album called Caledonia, which you can hear on platforms, which is really a country record. Mm. So I was making country music. Mm. And there's some forays and lemonheads into country music. We were obsessed yeah. with Towns and, you know, and Guy Clark and and uh, just Lucinda. That was that was music that we all just loved. So mm -hmm. I loved country music. I wanted to be in country music, of course, in my terms. And so I moved here, 
And Love and Love put me to work. I was working with some big country acts and learning the business, learning the the ropes and music row and building relationships. And I finally sort of caught caught what I thought was my break because I found a relatively unknown artist that I thought was one of the greats. You know, I was like, okay, this is this is one of the best country records I've ever heard. This is my ticket to, you know, working with this artist, kind of helping him figure it out. And that was Sturgill. Mm. And that was uh, High Top Mountain. So this is in 2012. <laughs> and it, from there, it was really interesting because I had a lot of people from Music Row explain to me why his record was not country music. Mm-hmm. And I had a similar experience with the Civil Wars. Like they were nominated for a CMA award in 2011. And a lot of people saying why they didn't deserve it. Hmm. Like they're not really country music because I think the collective understanding of the music row community back then is that when you say country music, you mean the radio, you mean the radio format. You don't mean the sound of it. You don't mean the songwriting. You don't mean the creative approach. You mean that it's something that is, you know, sort of acknowledged by their, their kind of, Business culture. Yeah, and maybe some of that's changing a little bit. I'm just thinking about like Zach Bryan, who's one of the biggest country stars around today, and the record's not like oozing country. In I was, the same I was reading the CMA nominations today, and I saw they nominated Zach Bryan for new artist, which, yeah. which I thought was funny, because he should be Entertainer of the Year. You know, they've it's at least one artist up for Entertainer of the Year that I don't think can sell out an arena. So, mm. you know, he's, in, he's doing a stadium tour. And yes, he's a country artist. He's mm-hmm. at least as country as a lot of stuff that this you know, the establishment is acknowledging. So, because there's always these weird moments, like Taylor Swift's a great example where it's like, she's country until she says she's not country, you mm-hmm. know, and she put out red and that was still a country record. You can't honestly say that there's really much on there that has anything to do with country music. It's a great record, mm-hmm. but it's a pop rock record, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like that question of, is it country back then was so disoriented to me because I was going out and hearing all these developing artists and it was a terrible, terrible time for, you know, for the, for the genre, because it was just all trucks and, you know, and, um, <clears throat> you know, cut off shorts and all that stuff of you know, ice cold Boyfriend's beer. T-shirt. Remember that? It was yeah. like, everything was about ice cold beer. And then here's Sturgill's record, which is like a stone classic. Now it's acknowledged as that, but he had to do a whole end run around the country establishment to get mm. established. And he's kind of personally sort of begged out of it, you know, who's much more sort of genre hopping than he let on at the time. And so now he's kind of this multi-genre artist. But I think in a lot of ways that that moment, you know, Sturgill's record coming out and connecting with an audience was the start of something that we're now seeing really explode into the mainstream.
all this will be gone Somehow it goes on and 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 on All I pray is you So I was recruited to run Rounder Records in 2017, based largely on my track record of, you know, getting involved with artists on the, on the rise. In what ways was that the same, uh, similar and different from your previous experience as a music attorney, like running well, a label? I realized after five years of doing that, that I really like to work for artists mm. rather than, you know, with a label developing artists because... I can be more true to the artist's vision as the artist's uh, um, advisor. Yeah, I mean, in Rounder is uh, you know famously an artist-friendly label. Concord also I would include in that umbrella. But at the same time, they're still it's a label, and you're on that side ultimately. Well, I got to work with incredible people, and I think we built an incredible roster. And two of two of the artists that we signed when I was at Rounder are, are in the are in the in the. Uh, the uh, Hot 100 Top 40 right now because of Zach Bryant, which is really a weird turn of events. Mm -hmm. Sierra Farrell and the Warren Treaty <laughs> are both, uh, you know, have hit records because they're they're featured on Zach Bryant's record. But I had a theory coming into that job that, and this well, is just let me insert that really quick and, and comment on this. But to me, you know, like from an indie perspective, some kind of indie people are afraid of labels. Da, da, da. But the Warren Treaty and Sierra are great examples of what a larger label can do for your career. Because on some level, those uh, collaborations were probably the product or those doors were opened because of those that bigger reach that that label offered. Am I correct in understanding that? I think so. Um, I feel that, and and I worked, the people I worked really closely with there, uh, Gary Pachosa, who's still there, incredibly smart, incredibly talented guy with a great ear. I mean, a le legend. A legend, yeah. Michelle Accolato was great. You know, she was the head of marketing there. You know, the team that we had, very much on the same page. And, and we were looking for something in the artists that we signed that was very specific, which is who are the artists who are great, you know, the great voices in the space that have the potential to reach large audiences if, if developed properly. And, and sometimes you just feel like you're strapping into something where it's just going to go. And um, that was certainly the way it felt with uh, Billy Strings, which we were very lucky to get in I mean, business with him. Yeah. A once in a lifetime talent. But Sierra's a good example because that did need development. And Gary, uh, made her record with her as producer in the worst part of the pandemic. And there were a lot of struggles that we experienced because a couple of years into my, my time there, that was when everything locked down and, and 
Concord was very locked down about things. You know, we could mm -hmm. only have two people in the studio at a time. And mm -hmm. so we had to make the record under those conditions. But when you hear a voice like hers and, and you experience someone who's a natural songwriter like her, if you can use a little bit of imagination, you can imagine how that could reach a huge audience. You know, she's really a special talent. Mm -hmm. Same with the Warren Treaty. You know, those are both things that we had to launch in the pandemic that were very challenging. But so we were looking for raw talent because I had a strong belief that there was going to be this mainstream break for for authentic roots music. And it's amazing to see it happening now. It's 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 so wild. And and I have a lot of respect for people who are in the mainstream country industry and a lot of the artists and and you know the craft that goes into making those records and writing those songs. But there's a demand now for authenticity, which is, I think, largely driven by the fact that, you know, there's been the striving for, for perfection for so long mm -hmm. in the studio. And, you know, now with the rise of AI tools and everything, it's like, apparently there's this desire for this kind of visceral music again, which is really exciting to me because I feel like I've seen it coming. Yeah. And, and I feel like the work I'm doing now, the artists I'm working with now, I'm drawing on 35 years of experience. You know, everything that I've done creatively in the in the industry is is uh, <clears throat> helping me to help artists to make the kinds of decisions that are formative for their careers. Um, well, you've all, you know, from from my perspective uh, in the East Nashville community. Uh, I've admired you and been grateful to you because you've been so generous over the years. I mean, you brokered my first like sync deal uh, for a song, <laughs> pardon the pun. And um, that's just been emblematic of sort of who you are um, as a, as a member of the community who's, you know, here to help. And uh, so I wonder um what brought you back to wanting to make uh, this current record? This is a, kind of what I want to talk about now because this is what's happening for you right now. Well, the, I think this is something also that's coming out of the pandemic. I just recently got done doing a bunch of interviews for Summer Associates of my law firm, which has been really interesting because these are all people who were in law school during the pandemic. Mm. And everybody's answers to these questions that we put in front of them, it's always like, well, you know, everything changed. <laughs> And, and I think that's true for a lot of people. I'm really grateful for that because if it was not for the pandemic, I probably would still be doing that job. And, and uh, I'm proud of everything we did, but I'm really- That job being the Concord job. Yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe not. But I think it was circumstances that were brought to, to the fore from the pandemic that, that led to the you know, chain of events that has me back in law practice. And mm. that's a good change for me. Mm. You know, that's that's been really healthy and I'm, it's been really fun and exciting to rebuild in that way. And a couple of things happened. Um, just before that, 2019, I lost my closest friend and collaborator, this guy at Ackerson. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> backing up a little bit, around the time that I first came to town, I was inspired to make music again. Well, by people like you, by, by being in a community of songwriters and experiencing these people's work, you know, people like Sturgill, people I was working with, like Taylor Goldsmith from Dawes, who's a close friend and longtime client. And uh, I'm such a fan, the guy, great incredible songwriter, you know, great guitar just, player, just such an inspiring person. Yeah. And I just really wanted to see if I could write songs again, because I'd, I'd gone through this process of learning how to write songs 
for the bands I was in. And it's like, yeah, I want to do that. I don't want to be, you know, a commercial songwriter. I want to write songs because I want to write songs. Yeah. I want to, I want to see if I can do good work. So I had about four or five years when I first came here when I would you know, spend some time on the weekends working on songs. Mm -hmm. And eventually I got to the point where I found a collaborator, this guy, Gregory, Gregory Latimer, has a studio called Make Sound Good and mm. in um, East Nashville. Incredible creative guy. He was a guy I'd known a little bit in the 90s. And I started just going to his garage studio and kind of plunking away a bit here and there. And around the time I went into the job at Concord, I had a, six or seven songs done. And I was sending tapes to my friend Ed, and the intention was always to get to his studio in Minneapolis. And Ed is a producer. He was produced a, a record for the Jayhawks. He did some stuff for replacements and, you know, a bunch of Minneapolis stuff. And he has, a, a, he had a band called Polera, which I was sort of part of early on, but went on to have a lot of success up there. So he was a very established guy. He had a recording studio that was very successful there. He just started a family. He had a young daughter and he got pancreatic cancer and had a pretty quick decline. Mm. And he passed away in 2019. I'm sorry. Thank you. Well, I mean, that's it, part of the part of the rub of living to be, you know, <laughs> to be, you know, as old as I am is that eventually that'll happen to you. You know, mm -hmm. everyone's gonna. I mean, if you're lucky, you you outlive your parents, but you have to lose your parents. You know, you have to lose people close to you. So, Ed was really the first person that was that important and special to me that I lost, and so I decided that to honor our friendship that one thing I had to do was finish the record that we've been working on. So, mm -hmm. you know, then everything locked down and, and um, I, <clears throat> I managed in 2019 to do one final session with him. And that's, that's the song, something to look forward to. We recorded the music and then I took a couple of years to write the lyric because it's very hard to write about something like that. Mm -hmm. And really caught ahead of steam because of feeling driven by what he would want. And and Ed was a very inspiring guy and he is a guy with a really strong work ethic. And, you know, he was always telling me to get my act together and, you know, actually get something done. But also I'm at the point in my life where we have three kids, two of them are in college now. One is in high school, she's about to start driving. We're at the point in parenting where it's not quite as heavy a lift as it used to yeah. be. And so I have some more time and I, I, I try to keep healthy. I want to live a long time. My parents are still living and healthy in their eighties. I got, I got hopefully a while yeah. on this planet. <laughs> I'm hoping. So what do I want to do in that time? I want to keep working because I love my work, but I want to keep working on my terms. And at some point I realized I don't care if I'm successful with music or not. I don't particularly care if, if it's popular. What I do care about is that I put in the work and actually make something that I feel is great that I can share with people, and hopefully it'll it'll inspire somebody. Well, it inspired me, and Good. It, well, it's, it's, it's a solid record. And um, and uh, the songwriting perspective comes from a real human being living on planet Earth, which is the kind of songwriting I like. Well, I, I have a I have a one specific rule about songwriting now, which is I don't put it out until it's good. I don't put it out unless it's an authentic expression of something that's real about me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be autobiographical, but it has to be authentic. And I think creative people understand that kind of authenticity. If you're authentic to yourself, 
a lot of my early songwriting efforts were, oh yeah, I wish I could write a song. I'd spend all day listening to the replacements and try to write a replacement song. You know? Yeah, doesn't really work very well. Yeah, maybe maybe it's a good song, maybe not, but it's not authentic. But that's how you learn how to write songs. Mm. All my early songs I wrote in high school sound like Velvet Underground songs because I was obsessed with the Velvet <laughs> Underground and just write it with a couple chords. Yeah, but they're not they they weren't authentic to my me or my experience. Now. I want, if somebody actually takes the time to listen to my record, I want, I want to communicate something that potentially, you know, will be a conversation with a listener that's authentic. Yeah. That's it. And I know when it's right. And, and I'm writing songs for, for another one now, and I'm not going to make a record until I have the songs. And, and I'm the only one that knows if they're ready or not. So those 10 songs that I put on that record, nine of which I wrote, one of which Ed wrote, are you know an authentic expression of who I am, and and that's that's why I'm I'm willing and, and grateful to be able to share it. Yeah, um, there's this idea in creativity that it's really the creative work is more about what the work reveals to the creator about him or herself, right? Um, as being of the primary importance, and everything else that comes out of that is. Uh, wonderful if it's noticed or commercially successful or so on, but really that the the true um, joy and the worth of the of the work is that self revelation. Um, I think that's you know what I get out of your idea of being authentic to yourself and also this kind of thirst for authenticity in the culture at large at this moment. Um, and it's also why, f for some reason, I don't worry about this, the, the AI revolution that may or may not be coming. Um, cause I was never really interested in writing music other than for like, did I like it first? And then what if I've somehow managed to um, find a large enough audience on planet earth that I've made a career out of it, um, on, you know, my terms or whatnot. But the thing that was, was primary and still is, is just like, do I like this? And is this feel like in that terrible cauldron of creation when you're actually in the in the trenches trying to like find a song in there somewhere? That is a real mystical process. It's mis mysterious is maybe a more accurate way of putting it. I don't know what's going on in that motion, but it's not exactly comfortable. But something in that that on a good day comes out of that, and you're like, whoa, that is that feels like me. You know, I think that that's, um, I think that you can relate to that. And well, that's what, what seems like the, is happening in your new record. One of the changes that I made, so there's a, there's a song that I particularly like on my record called Lancaster, which is kind of a ballad. Aaron Ray's is the, the harmony voice in there. Mm. What a star. Mm. Yeah, incredible talent. I Another think great, great people helped me on that. But um, my, my mix engineer, Paul, the guy from the zero boys I mentioned earlier, he mixed the record and mastered it. And he tried to turn it into a duet. He's like, this needs to be a conversation. Mm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, if anybody cares about this record, we can do that remix later. <laughs> but I, I had, I had nine songs for the record and I was going to call that a day. Nine songs is enough for an album. And I was going to Gregory's house to record the last song, which is a song called Trouble Land. And I was having a harder time writing there in the home stretch. Mm -hmm. I think because I was putting pressure on myself, like, oh, I gotta write more songs. You know, I'd have, you know, hours and hours and not coming up with much. And then I sat down and there's kind of like a music box melody that drives that song. And I think in another phase of my life as a songwriter, 
I would have, I would not have gone down that rabbit hole because I would have thought like, well, I stolen from somewhere. It's too simple. You know, there's not enough going on here to really make a song, but <clears throat> because I liked the way it sounded, I went with it and I had mm -hmm. the song written in about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. the, the lyrics just came very naturally, almost in a flow. And I think it's one of the best songs in the record. And I know that as a younger writer, I would not have written that song because I would not have been open you wouldn't have trusted to it. the idea yeah. because I would have I would have rejected it for being too simple or too obvious. Yeah. And so now one of the one of the techniques I use as a songwriter is if I have an idea that appeals to me on any level musically, like a melodic phrase or something like that, I'm gonna run it all the way down until I know that it sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because it might be good. And and the the difference between this record and other records that I made is mostly that it's simpler. Mm -hmm. The music's simpler, the chord progressions are simpler, the melodies are simpler. And so the other thing that's different about it is that I really took the time to get the lyrics right. This is the first time I've ever printed the lyrics. Mm -hmm. So if you buy the LP, you get the, you get a print out of the lyrics. I, I didn't do that before because I wasn't really proud of the lyrics because I didn't do the work mm. to feel like this is actually the exact statement I want to make. I just, mm -hmm. you know, I was too distracted or too lazy or something like that to really follow through like that. Not to say I didn't write any songs that I'm proud of back then, but I didn't really put in the work. Mm -hmm. So now if it takes me 10 years to make a record, that's fine. Because nobody's waiting for, a, you know, very, very few people waiting for a John Strom record. God bless them if they are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it isn't like, you know, the next Zach Bryan record or whatever, where there's millions of people around the world waiting for it. This is my work on my terms and, and you know, my feeling about it is I'm basically a hobbyist, mm -hmm. but I'm also sharing something that, that, you know, that I've actually crafted and put the time in to feel like I hope people take the time to experience it, you know? Well, and there's not very many people in the industry that have, you know, been somebody that can walk through a contract for an artist um, and broker that, and then willing to be vulnerable themselves and sing a song into a microphone that they wrote. That's not a common uh, dual existence. So I, I personally think it would be hard to advise artists if you're not an artist. I really do. I don't think that's a common feeling though in your trade. Well, I think everything I draw on is from my experiences. Yeah. Like I can talk to you about touring in a van or whatever, because I've done it. I did it for 10 years. Yeah. I can talk to you about running out of money and not knowing what how I was going to get my rent paid because I've been there. Yeah. I can talk to you about what it feels like to go all in as an artist because I've done it. And, and I can talk to you about the creative process because I've spent, you know, thousands of hours engaging in that. And I'm not saying that, that, you know, to be a musical lawyer, you have to be a musician to qualify. I'm just saying my own toolbox, the reason I want to do this work, the reason that I think I'm, I'm well suited for this work is because I really, really, truly deeply ideologically care about protecting the rights and interests of artists mm -hmm. to give them the opportunity to do the work, you know, unobstructed. I want to find ways for artists to navigate the music business where they can do their work on their terms. When I talk to great artists, like real artists, that's what they care about. They don't mm -hmm. care so much about making money. They want to make money. They want to mm -hmm. make a living. They care much more about the integrity of their work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, that's why I've developed the skill set to be able to go through that 40 page contract and look for those, you know, those couple of words in there that are going to 
give the label the right to make an AI model your voice or whatever. Because right. I think that that revolution is coming. Yeah. And I think it's going to be weird. And I think it's going to be kind of great, but it's also going to be kind of terrible. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to result in an ocean of mediocrity, which is already kind of out there. I mean, you oh, think God. about what technology's done to music, it's, it's enhanced creativity. It's also been resulted in a lot of mediocrity. You know, think about the fact that anybody can sound a certain way by, you know, dialing in the auto tune or, you know, putting everything on a grid, you know, it's like the idea of making music with a vibe and with a, you know, humanity to it is getting lost. Yeah. I mean, a part of the mission of this podcast is, is I mean, it's part of my own personal mission. And it's a mission I've been on for 10 years. I had a, uh, a precursor to this called Wigby. This is probably in, oh, I don't know, 2011, which was like me and a, I had a camera rig and I had a buddy that was good engineer and we'd do kind of basically do like a tiny desk, like field recordings of artists, because what I love watching and listening to is a, a person who can write a great song or a very good song and sing it well and play it at the same time. That's where I live. And this podcast is all, is that, you know, it's just like, I, I love these, these collaborations because, um, they are, they're just what they are and what they are is, um, something that happened in a place and time between two people at this moment. And it's, it's precious and it's unaiable. Yeah. Well, I, I like when, when communities come together, creative people that want to collaborate, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I also think that one of the byproducts of, of the, evolution of generative AI and, and creative pursuits is is going to be people having a real hunger for human authenticity. Like what are things that people can do unassisted by technology? Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why suddenly, you know, these Appalachian artists are super popular mm -hmm. is because it's some dude with a guitar in front of a microphone out in the woods, just singing, singing his or her heart out. Mm -hmm. That's great singing their heart out yeah. it's it's a it's that's real to people and it should be mm -hmm. because art serves a lot of purposes but i think the primary purpose of art is is sharing human experience yes. right? and connection yeah man and, th and that's what interests me that's what keeps me in the business that's that's one of the things that keeps me wanting to make music is is wanting to make those connections well, speaking of making those connections, um, do you want to play a song or two? Absolutely. Uh, let's get set up for that. And man, I just want to say thank you for your time and perspective. It's, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you. All thank right. Thank you for having me. One, two, three.
Morse Code Podcast is produced by Corby Lanker and Kyle Noctegall in East Nashville, Tennessee. Our executive producer is Randa Newman. You can find full video of this and all past episodes by visiting morsecodepodcast.com.